Hello and welcome to this special edition of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, the Deputy Director of the Institute. So last week, Swala Braverman and Rishi Sunak unveiled the government's latest plans to make good on the Prime Minister's pledge to stop the boats in the form of new asylum legislation, the Illegal Immigration Bill. And as we record, the bill is having its second reading later today in the Commons. We've decided to take a deep dive into the legislation. What does it propose? What is it trying to achieve? How does it differ from existing legislation? And perhaps most importantly, does it have any chance of working? To cover all of that and more, I'm joined by IFG senior researcher Reese Klein, who leads our home office watching activities. Hi, Reese. Hi, Emma. I'm delighted to be joined by Madeline Sumption, director of the Migration Observatory. Hi, Madeline. Hello. Thanks for coming. And by Sandra Katwala, director of British Future, which is a non-partisan think tank that works on integration, immigration, identity, and race. Hi, Sandra. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks. I know it's a really busy time for both of you, so very pleased that you could be with us today. Okay, before we start diving into the detail of the bill, let's start with the political context. Madeline, why has the government introduced this bill? What problem is it trying to fix? Well, the basic context of this is that the number of people who've been um, trying to cross the, well, who have successfully crossed the channel in small boats over the last few years has risen uh, quite substantially. A few years ago, this just wasn't a thing. It was incredibly rare if it happened at all. Um, And uh, by last year, by 2022, um, there were just over 45,000 people who who, who crossed uh, in a small boat across the channel. And most of those people claimed asylum. Um, And so I think the sort of most immediate cause is that uh, the government feels that it's under pressure to um, address the issue. It is an issue, as I'm sure we'll discuss in this podcast, that is very uh, difficult to address. um, And their chosen solution has um, been effectively a deterrence-based policy that will um, make life much more difficult for people who manage to cross the channel and who claim asylum. Um, and in this uh, particular, you know, there's a there's a whole um, series of measures that have been implemented over the few years, and this one goes further than the others by effectively um, getting rid of the asylum system for people who cross the channel in in small boats. And I'm sure we'll talk about the detail of that a little bit more. And Madeline, you've highlighted the fact that the numbers of people crossing in small boats has rapidly, vastly increased in the last couple of years. Um, Can you just tell us a bit about why that is? There are various different um, schools of thought on this. There there isn't a single answer. Um, One of the reasons um, that we think that people are crossing on small boats rather than by other means is actually the result of successful enforcement elsewhere. So in the past, um, more people used to... um, uh, but the, the majority of the people who managed to cross uh, through irregular means, as far as we know, used to come uh, on the back of, of lorries. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of effort um, to uh, increase the security around the freight terminals in northern France, you know, things like uh, high security fencing, which you will see if you've uh, been on the Eurostar recently. Um, and um, so that became harder. Um, and so part of this seems to be a kind of diversion of people um, then finding an, another route. And we know from other countries that actually that dynamic is quite common. If you clamp down in one pace, um, it can lead to, um, to diverting the um, movement of, of people elsewhere. Where. It's not just a question of people being switching from one route to another, though. I think um, that it appears to be the case, and again, this is a bit speculative, but it appears to be the case that effectively once the viability of this uh, route was had been demonstrated, people realised that it was um, that it was possible, and an industry grew up around it, and that um, means that sort of even though even if you um, 
change some of the conditions around the time, you know, what was happening around sort of 2018, 19, 20, when this, um, when the small boats phenomenon emerged, you know, it might be something that's established itself now and therefore is, is likely to continue. Thanks, Madeline. And uh, Reese, as, as Madeline kind of intimated, this isn't the only new legislation and policy developed to try and fix the problem of small boats, is it? What, what's already happened? No, that's that's right. Uh, in the in the three years or so that this has been a growing problem, we've seen uh, successive governments take uh, a number of different steps to try to address it. So we've seen the immigration rules changed to make people arriving via a safe country. So the vast majority of people arriving by small boats inadmissible. We then saw that enshrined further in the Nationality and Borders Act last year. Uh, we also saw the agreement with Rwanda, the Migration and Economic Development Partnership, which would, in theory, allow the government to send people arriving by small boats to Rwanda to claim asylum there. Um, uh, and we've seen a, a succession of, of deals with France on enforcement and patrols, including the one last week, uh, uh, all of which essentially have that central aim of, of deterrence and prevention. Thank you. And Sunday, you do lots of work on public attitudes. How do you think the public will be reacting to the legislation that the government's announced? Well, I think I think the detail isn't something people will be aware of yet. But um, the general approach of the government, I would say, is is less popular than they would hope and they would mm-hmm. think it, it is, but more popular than its um, than opponents of the bill in civic society and faith would like just to give you an example of something we know a lot about now because it was announced a while ago the the Rwanda plan a year ago um, involved um, you know has never seen a majority in favour of the plan or a majority against it in any poll however framed or however spun and there's a reason for this which is that these approaches really polarise the public very strongly around you want to be tough control and deterrence or do you want to be compassion and humanity and about a third of the public can put themselves in one of those camps but most people don't want to have to make that choice they don't think you should have to not have any compassion to have control Um, they want a competent government to combine the two so that's why I think it's polarizing Um, most conservative voters would like this sort of thing if it worked but might be quite sceptical about whether it will or not. Most opposition voters um, don't like this, don't like the language, don't like the policy. Some of the swing voters of the Labour Party um, would care about, would be on the fence or quite tempted or would like it if it worked, but don't think it's worth the energy, the time and the money if it's going to fail. And talking about the opposition, where where does this leave Labour? What has Labour's response been so far to, to the bill? Well, Labour has been against the bill, Um, And it's got a choice, really. Does it want to say it's wrong in principle or does it want to say it won't work? And to some extent, it's saying both, but it's putting the emphasis on the workability of the proposals, because in a way, that's a bridging message. If they say the Rwanda policy is an expensive gimmick that spent £140 million and achieved nothing, and these plans won't work, and they've got reasons, the lack of detention places to detain everybody, the lack of returns agreements to deport everybody, they're speaking to the group that is on the fence and think it won't work, while also saying in their reasoned amendment and so on, as the SNP and the Liberal Democrats have done, we don't like it because it breaches the core principle of the refugee convention as well. So they're against it in principle and practice, but they're putting the focus of their voice on the unworkability of the scheme rather than that it's wrong in principle. Thanks, Sunder. And I don't want to spend a, a huge amount of time on Linica, but it feels difficult to um, to avoid talking about what's been happening this weekend. Um, Sunder, do you think, is the row over match of the day, is it just a distraction or does it have some real significance in the debate around the bill? 
I think it's, it's been a distraction in the sense that nobody knows anything about the bill other than the fact that there's an argument about Gary Lineker and the football highlights once on television. It's quite hard to explain. Is that a free speech criticising the government? Is it a BBC impartiality? Is it a lessons from history and what you can and can't say? It's quite complicated to explain, as I found to my 10-year-old, about why the football <laughs> highlights weren't on because of the asylum bill and so um but it's you know it, it, in one sense it's a similar polarization in another sense actually half the people who support this bill will think the bbc has gone too far throwing ganolinica off when a quarter of the public um like that so you've got the sort of the opposite political problem in a way that mm. the conservatives have got half of their vote in an unpopular quarter of the public who will you know banish ganolinica and banish all the others and mps tweeting saying isn't the football so much better when you don't have any commentators which i think i think for most people it just brings you to that world where you know is is everything going to be sucked up into the polarization what i think will land with people is that this asylum bill whatever it is is very very controversial Yep. And so let's get on to the controversial bill itself. Um, turning to the kind of detail of the legislation, Reese, can you just start by setting out for us some of the kind of key proposals that we'll then talk through? Yeah, absolutely. So to achieve that core aim of deterrence, the bill tries to go about it in several ways. First is to sort of ban anyone arriving via a safe country, essentially anyone arriving irregularly from claiming asylum in the UK. It's uh, deeming them permanently inadmissible. And that permanently is the is the difference to, to previous approach, which I'm sure we'll come on to shortly. It then gives the uh, government the power to detain those people, firstly, for up to 28 days without access to bail or appeals in the vast majority of cases. And then after that 28 days, for however long the Home Secretary considers there to be a sort of reasonable prospect of the person's removal. It also then places a duty on the Home Secretary to remove those people who have been deemed inadmissible in most circumstances where they're able to either to, uh, in some cases, their country of origin, if deemed safe, or to a safe uh, uh, third country in the, in the government's eyes. And then finally, it uh, introduces a the prospect of a cap on uh, people arriving via safe and legal routes to be voted on in Parliament. But the briefing around the legislation suggests that this would, would only be enacted uh, after the small boats crossings issue has been resolved. And it's also just worth touching on one thing the bill doesn't do, which is bring about significant changes to the capacity for returns and removals. Great. Thanks, Reese. Well, look, let's start with the, the breadth of the kind of blanket approach being taken in the bill. Everyone who arrives in the UK irregularly via a safe country will be inadmissible for asylum. The bills I know intended to target people arriving by small boats, but in practice, it's going to apply much more widely. Um, Sunder, how does the new legislation change who is inadmissible? And, and what does this mean um, in practice for people claiming asylum in, in the UK? For, for some extent, I think this is third time lucky for the government with these inadmissibility rules. They they got the new inadmissibility rules um, as Brexit happened. They reinforced them in the bill. So it doesn't change who is inadmissible at first, but it changes or it tries to change the rules as to what happens if you can't remove anybody. So I think I think this bill makes a difference for people that you have got a reasonable prospect of removing. And the government particularly is thinking about people from Albania who were, you know, a large share last year and they've got a working returns agreement. They could already return people to Albania. This might speed up some of the processes. In theory, if the Rwanda scheme was up and running and you were going to send some people there and people think that might be 200 or 300 people a year and sometimes the government says it will be tens of thousands as well, this would would be... uh, 
helping you do that by declaring people inadmissible. What the government has done so far after last year's bill is to say, if we cannot realistically remove you anywhere, we shall have to admit you to the UK asylum system. Your inadmissibility ends. We're going to penalise you. We're going to give you temporary protection, three years protection, not permanent protection. But inadmissible people will be admitted. And this bill says inadmissible people will never be admitted. And this is almost certainly a breach of the Refugee Convention. UNHCR says so, and there doesn't seem any way that it can't be. Can this be upheld, this permanent inadmissibility of people who cannot be removed? There's practical issues. What are you doing? Are you having to sustain people, house them, feed them uh, forever? And what is the future plan? Or will you refuse to do that and have a large destitute population that can't go everywhere. That's the difference. Not that new people become inadmissible, but that they're saying inadmissibility forever is now the rule. Thanks, Edinda. That's really clear. Reese. the bill also changes the rules around modern slavery, including for Albanians. What exactly is the government trying to do here and what are some of the legal and ethical concerns? My understanding is that the government is trying to address what it sees as abuse of the modern slavery referral pathway in which we, uh, at the moment, uh, about three quarters, between two thirds and three quarters of people who are detained having arrived by a small boat are referred as uh, potential victims of modern slavery. And most of those people are then released from detention either by the Home Office or by an immigration judge. And what the government is trying to do in the bill is essentially prevent those people who have been deemed inadmissible under those criteria from using that pathway to prevent their removal from uh, the country. Now, obviously, that might help them to remove Albanian people to Albania, but it also comes at the expense of closing off that uh, route to protection and support for presumably lots of very vulnerable uh, people who have arrived in the country having been trafficked and, and victims of modern slavery. And I think over the weekend, there was also some confusion and concern, including indeed from some Conservative MPs, about how some of these rules are going to apply to children. Senda, what do we know on this so far? My understanding of it is that the bill does apply to um, everybody, families, uh, children, uh, adults, and so on. There is uh, an opportunity for the Home Secretary to take unaccompanied children out of, of that and make provision for them uh, should the Home Secretary choose to do that. Um, the legal duty on the Home Secretary would then kick in if uh, a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old was here and they turned 18, actually all of the consequences of being a person covered by this act would come in and they would then have a legal duty to deport them maybe eight years later. So I'm sure all of this will be challenged, but that's what it says as far as I can see on the face of the bill. And, and the other interesting thing, it seems, on this is that while the unaccompanied minors under the age of 18 are not placed under the duty of the Home Secretary to remove them, they are nevertheless to be deemed permanently inadmissible. So they still fall under that bracket of, of, of ban to the asylum system, even if they don't necessarily need to be removed by the Home Secretary. Yeah, And so that permanence, again, um, coming out as one of the key differences here. I think we've already touched on this, but the other important part of this legislation is how the government can detain people um, that it's trying to remove from the country. Reese, what, what exactly is the bill doing here? I mean, this is very much what Sundar touched on earlier. So under the current guidance, um, if if the government is unable to prove someone is inadmissible or unable to organise their removal, after six months or thereabouts, they're admitted into the asylum system. And essentially, by inserting that permanence, it's creating a condition in which, uh, as the, the bill deems it, 
uh, a person can be detained for uh, however long the Home Secretary deems there to be a reasonable prospect of removal. And essentially, that seems to be empowering the Home Secretary's interpretation of what a reasonable prospect means and reducing the role of of the courts in deciding the uh, uh, rightful length of, of detention there. And just just to add to that, um, I think that what's interesting about the detention provisions in in the bill is that it does seem to signal. Obviously, a lot will depend on how they're implemented, but it does seem to signal quite a substantial reversal in what's been the government's position on detention in the last um, ten years, which is that you know detention is to be used used sparingly and uh, as something that you do immediately prior to removal um, so that you don't have people, you know, large numbers of people in detention if there isn't a prospect of removing them. Now, obviously, it may be that in practice, um, whether for ethical reasons or for logistical reasons, just because they don't have the detention space, they may they may not end up using all the powers that, um, uh, that the bill gives them. But there, it is interesting to see these provisions of detention there, especially in the context of a situation where, as Sunda pointed out, um, we're not necessarily expecting large numbers of people actually to be removed as a result of um, of the provisions in the bill, because there aren't really any places, at the, at the moment at least, there aren't many places for them to be removed to. And so I think it does uh, raise interesting questions about kind of how and why people will be detained and whether that will be very different than it has been in the past. And just continuing on the kind of where, where can people go with Rwanda not yet enacted? I mean, where can the government actually send people, Madeline? Well, as you say, the, you know, there aren't um, agreements currently with um, so-called safe third countries to, to remove people uh, to. Um, even when Rwanda's up and running, if you know if it um, goes, uh, if it survives the legal challenges, um, it's expected only to have um, you know quite small capacity for um, to, to take uh, people with pending asylum claims. Um, there has been some chatter in the immigration policy community about uh, the UK potentially asking to rejoin the EU Dublin arrangement, which. Um, would, uh, if that happened, and if obviously the EU um, were amenable to that, um, would mean that there were potentially safe third countries in Europe that people could uh, could go to. But I think um, you shouldn't um, sort of assume that that fixes the problem from the government's perspective, because actually, if you look back, um, the, the UK, like actually many EU countries, um, didn't never returned that many people under the Dublin arrangements in the past. Anyway, it's logistically actually quite a lot more complicated than um, uh, than people realise. So, uh, so I think that probably you know the expectation, the most sort of mainstream expectation, is actually that a lot of these people just remain in the UK because there's nowhere um, for for them to be removed to. This there is just one other quirky thing about the bill, which I think is um, is in some ways quite weird, which is that it um, it actually makes in theory it makes it harder to return um, people who would have been refused under the current system. And that's because um, they're not by not making decisions on people's asylum claims, it means they can't be returned to the home country. So if you have someone from a country where actually a lot of people do get refused asylum, like maybe someone like Pakistan, um, under current policy, at least in theory, that person, once they've had a refusal, could be removed to Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Under the proposed policy, that wouldn't be the case because they wouldn't get a decision on their claim. And that means they wouldn't get a negative decision either. So it actually becomes harder to remove that person because you have to find a safe third country for them. 
And Madeline, do you think that that's, um, is that just poor drafting, um, presumably an unintended consequence of the legislation? Or I suspect it's an unintended consequence of the fact that the, you know, the idea of the policy is to make people permanently inadmissible. And if you're going to make them admissible and effectively refuse to hear their claims, then that does mean that, um, that you're also not going to hear the claims of the people that would have been refused and then yeah. would potentially uh, be returnable. I don't see how you could, ne- you couldn't necessarily you know, refuse these people. If, if you're going to refuse the people, you need to have a process yeah. for refusing them. And that takes you back to the beginning of the process of having an asylum system for people who cross on small birds. Yeah. Sunder, sorry, you were going to come in. I think there are three kinds of places you can return somebody. You can return somebody to the, from the, to the country they're from. And so the government's quite keen that it can do that for people from Albania, assuming that almost all claims are, are, not, are not valid and they've put them on a specialist, say that. You can return people to another country that they've been through that you consider they should have claimed in, which would be France or Belgium. So in theory, if you had a safe routes to the UK and safe returns to France deal with France, you might be able to do something. There are no such deals um, in place. Or you can return them, you can send them to a country they've got no connection to at all, of which the Rwanda deal is meant to be an example. And, you know, the government might say, well, that could scale up enormously. Um, or, you know, maybe Uganda would like the same deal as Rwanda. Um, some of that could start to happen after Christmas 2024. But in the, in the meantime, this year, nobody who arrives who isn't Albanian is going to be returned. And there is, um, as Madeline has been explaining to us, there is a set of people, Iraq has a 50% rate, you could have returns deals with India, Bangladesh, Nigeria, Pakistan. There is a set of countries where you will now find it harder to return people because you chose not to make a decision. So I think I think there are going to be very, very few returns for people who aren't um, from Albania in the next um, nine months. And then the government has to just hope that people read Hansard closely enough to be put off by the idea that that will be happening in the future. But there won't be any actionable, um, I think, um, removals happening for quite a long time. Thanks, Cinder. And Madeline, I think it was you who mentioned the kind of ethics of this, and I want to just stay on this point for a moment. I mean, a majority of people may well be in favour of acting to stop the crossings, but that's quite different to scenes of people being forcibly deported, um, as is indefinite detention, limits to access to bail and appeals. I mean, Cinder, how do you see the ethics of this? And, and, and indeed, do you think kind of ethics are featuring in ministers' political considerations? Well, I think I think it's it's a very it's a very political um, debate. There are definitely people in the government and especially on the backbenchers who who don't think this will work. In a way, there's almost a consensus now in this very polarised debate that it isn't going to work uh, at first. And some people say, well, it isn't going to work, but that's when you have to leave the European Convention on Human Rights. That's when you have to take further steps so that it could work. And other people, the opposition party, saying, well, it's it's never going to work. I think um, the very interesting editorial in the Spectator magazine, a similar editorial in the Times, mm-hmm. a couple of voices breaking this, you know, left-right polarisation that are saying that the essential flaw here is that people have talked for a long time, 20, 30 years, about wanting to protect genuine refugees, but not wanting asylum seekers who don't have a valid claim or, you know, using language like bogus asylum seekers, if you're in the tabloids about that. And that this bill makes no such distinctions at all. Um, and this is, I think, important for the culture and operation of the Home Office as well. Because, of course, we had the Windrush scandal, a different kind of issue, but it's meant to have brought about a big cultural change in the Home Office. And the core principle of that cultural change is always see the face behind the case. Well, if your proposal is to reject as inadmissible forever 
any case, whatever the face, whatever the merits, you cannot be operating the Windrush principle. So I think that is a really big issue of principle for the Refugee Convention and the international obligations we've got, but also a a massive challenge, I think, to this journey of reform that the Home Office and this government say they're still on. Yeah, and I I think it's another, I mean, that debate around the interpretation of the face behind the case reforms post Wendy Williams review, keeps iterating in different sort of forums of the Home Office, doesn't it? I mean, we've been debating over the past year how you apply the Rwanda scheme to that uh, debate. And it's one of the really interesting things in in the Williams review on that is it applies the face behind the case principle both to the ends of policy and to the means. So it's it's a test, my understanding at least, both to civil servants and ministers, which obviously creates that tension that we see play out whenever we get these public announcements of these immigration policies. Thanks, Rhys. And and Rhys, in the meantime, needing to detain many more people is going to cause the government other kinds of headaches, isn't it? I mean, is it practically possible for, for the government to do that? Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be logistically difficult and expensive if the government puts itself in a position as it is doing with this legislation to detain large numbers of people without prospect of removal. I mean, there's been briefing about the possibility of requiring two RAF sites to try to increase the immigration detention capacity, but even that probably won't be enough if they're actually going to detain everyone at least for 28 days who arise by small boats. And then that brings a whole raft of other difficult questions. I mean, we know that local authorities have been very unhappy with the way the Home Office has gone about acquiring hotel accommodation. Um, And we saw the scenes outside the hotel in Merseyside recently where it became a magnet for sort of far-right violence. Those are all going to be really difficult questions the the department has to deal with as it tries to enact the legislation. The other one is cost. And part of the motivation that the Home Secretary outlined in her speech to Parliament when she was introducing the legislation was the amount of money the government is spending on hotel accommodation. And it's hard to see without increases in returns and removals capacity, how that problem is going to go away, because either the government is going to end up spending a lot more on immigration detention, or people are going to receive bail after 28 days detention, in which case, presumably in one way or another, they'll be eligible for some accommodation and support under existing legislation. So likely, at least in the short to medium term, that cost is going to go up. One of the other things that we've touched on a bit already is uh, international law and the various ways in which um, this bill clashes with it. Um, Reese, is it right that the Home Secretary herself has said that this bill could breach international law? Yes. So the, the, the Home Secretary has made a statement under something called Section 19.1b of the Human Rights Act in the legislation. And essentially what that means is that it, the government is unable to say that it definitely adheres to international obligations. Um, The Home Secretary went further in a letter to uh, backbench MPs and said it was her interpretation that there was a more than 50% chance that the bill could be found to have breached the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, And essentially what that means is it makes appeals to the European Court much, much, much more likely. And as Sundar outlined earlier in the conversation, there are also lots of people pointing out why this probably breaches the Refugee Convention. Yeah. And um, Madeline, what do you think some of the legal challenges um, to the legislation will look like and, and what kind of impact might that have on the delivery of the bill? 
It's a good question. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about the compatibility of, of the bill with um, with various different uh, international and domestic laws. And, you know, we'll have, I think, the, the usual um, range of, of legal challenges. But And, you know, there's still a lot of debate about, you know, <clears throat> which of the provisions might prove to be legal and which wouldn't. In some ways, I think this is a, is a little bit of a distraction. I, I think the biggest challenge for the bill is not the legal issues, even if the UK wasn't, um, you know, hadn't signed the Refugee Convention or hadn't, wasn't part of the European Convention on Human Rights. I, I think the sort of practical obstacles to implementing um, it are are in some ways bigger. The sort of difficulties that you would have with um, with detention, with the sort of implications of creating potentially quite a large population of people with without any status in the UK, but who can't be removed. And those, in my view, are actually um, more significant than the legal challenges. Thanks, Madeline. And I want to come back to the practical challenges because I think we um, quite agree that that feels like the major hurdle. Um, Cinder, do all roads lead to a battle with the European Court of Human Rights, do you think? And, and I, I suppose, is that an outcome ministers want with an eye on the next election? I think I agree with Madeline, both that the practical agenda is um, is the harder one, even if you had all of the legal rights to do these things, it's very hard to see how you do them, but that the legal battle might might end up being the point or might be what the government can get out of this. Um, you can breach the refugee convention, and that's really a political argument where people see you, say you've breached it, but it's quite hard to see how that is enforceable. Whereas when you breach the European Convention on Human Rights, you hear about it from your domestic courts and then from the European courts. And um, I think... Um, ministers might well take a situation where they can complain that this solution wouldn't have wouldn't have been blocked if it wasn't for the lawyers and the NGOs and the bishops and the rabbis and the um, and the courts and that that might well be that might be well where we end up they might have permission to proceed with the plan for example the Rwanda plan has won its initial stage but on the basis that you have to consider it safe for each individual person, at which point it becomes a much slower point. So it's almost certainly the case, I think, that not much will happen uh, for nine months um, other than legal battles and that the government will like to say it's trying and that other people are trying to block it. Whether that works or doesn't work politically for people who wanted you to get on with this, I think none of us know about that. But if the boats are still coming and you promise to stop the boats, then you can say, but I was stopped by my opponents and I was stopped by the lawyers, I was stopped by the courts. I'm not sure if the government will be talking about it at the general election. I think a lot of the sound bites from the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary might be appearing on opposition posters of the Labour Party or any party that Mr Farage has become part of by then. And this has come up throughout the discussion, but it feels like the practical barriers to implementation um, of this legislation are are enormous. So, so Madeline, just so we have it all in a, in one place, what do you see as being the kind of the most critical practical bar- barriers to to this legislation working in practice? Well, there are two related things. The first is all the all the rhetoric around um, the legislation has been that people will be detained and removed, um, and it remains very difficult to see um, how people will be removed if there are no safe third countries to to remove them to. And even if there's some, you know, the government um, concludes additional agreements, um, the the number of people, at least if you look at the uh, recent statistics, the number of people who've been crossing the channel in small boats is so significant in the tens of thousands that you would need an absolutely massive transformation in the UK's ability to remove people to safe third countries. Um, you know, even sort of a couple more Rwandas isn't going to to make a big a big difference from that perspective. I think the other big um, practical challenge um, 
is is then what happens if in some ways there's a bit of a gamble inherent in the measure which is that uh, the government is hoping that it will be such an effective deterrent that they won't actually need to apply the penalties that they're envisaging to to many people um i.e. the penalty of effectively being left in the UK with uh, with no status um now if that uh, doesn't turn out to be the case um which you know uh, based on the research looks like a distinct possibility um, then there's, I think, the big practical challenge is what actually happens to to people who, you know, yeah. how, who are they supported by? Where do they where do they live? And if there are tens of thousands of them, which I think is is very possible, I think um, just kind of dealing with with that, you know, with tens of thousands of people who may potentially be in the UK if this legislation makes it onto the books and and stays there, um, could be in the country for for decades. And the government's given no information on what might happen to people without status so far? No, they do. Um, my understanding is that they will need to be eligible for, for asylum support. Um, and, and that uh, provision is included in the bill. So we're, re- we're looking in theory, at least, at people um, who are effectively in the UK, unable to work and have to be supported by, by the state. Um, so I think, I mean, I th- there, there are possibilities within, there are exceptions that can be made. And there's one interpretation that says actually maybe the government will end up being pragmatic and will in fact end up in very various um, sort of indirect ways granting people status just because it's so difficult to have people here um, in the UK population without giving them status. And Sundar, is there anything you want to add on the kind of practical, um, the implementation barriers to, to this legislation? Well, I think I think the, the two are detentions and removals. And detentions in the end, if you, you can have the worst of all, both worlds, I think, if you quadruple your capacity and your cost to hold everyone for 28 days and then release everybody into the, um, you know, black economy and irregular working and so on. I mean, that, that hasn't done very well, but, but removals will, will take, will take, will take a long time. So, um, I think, I think the politics of this issue in the 18 months is that not much of this will happen and there'll be a very big argument about that. I think a really important practical implementation issue is that the next government and the next parliament will pick up the legacy of, um, you know, possibly tens of thousands of people with um, a duty to permanently make them inadmissible. And I think, you know, we'll have to work out what kinds of legislative changes, what kinds of practical changes can pick can pick that up at the moment, the inadmissibility rules essentially bring you a six-month delay of having to be in a hotel for six months longer. This will bring a permanent position of needing uh, people to be housed um, as inadmissible as a permanently inadmissible population. That's going to have to change um, uh, the other side of the election. But the politics of what is permissible to do that, how do you repair um, the framework of law? How do you find the practical solutions that have public consent? I think that is a really big question for 2025 that probably won't get heard during this incredibly rapid parliamentary process where the government's trying to pass this breakneck speed which isn't i think necessarily that clever because once they've passed it we find out if it works or not and it looks very challenging and madeline you touched on um on deterrence reese you've written quite a lot about the principle of deterrence which is really at the heart of this bill the hope that it will put people off from coming in the first place um i mean do you think the legislation will deter people i mean the, the problem is there isn't evidence to to sort of strengthen that deterrence case i mean this is the latest in a long 
line of uh, uh, policies that sort of are driven by what some people describe as pull factor orthodoxy. And we've spoken to, you know, lots of former Home Office officials that describe it to us. And essentially that is the belief that by making the system of rules harsher in the UK, you can deter people from trying to, to come here. It's the same uh, thinking that was behind the, is behind the Rwanda scheme and why the, uh, uh, the permanent secretary of the Home Office, Matthew Rycroft, sought a ministerial direction for that scheme because of that lack of evidence to um, strengthen the case that that policy would provide good uh, value for public money. I mean, the Home Office have been challenged to uh, release their internal research and evidence evidence on uh, pull factors repeatedly. The latest published uh, commission on that is from about 2002. And most uh, evidence suggests that links to the country are are stronger than particular changes to asylum uh, policy. So essentially, there isn't the evidence really to back up that deterrence case. Brilliant. Thanks, Reese. And I, I think to finish, I just want to spend some time placing the bill in the kind of bigger picture of, of asylum policy. Reese, how, how does this legislation fit into the seemingly never-ending um, news cycle around asylum? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first thing, I suppose, is is you look to the negotiations with France, and we saw the, the summit on Friday was the, the latest iteration of that. But as we've spoken about earlier in the conversation, conspicuous by its absence in that was any agreement on returns. And that, that really is the, the, the key to, to making this legislation more workable for the government's stated aims. But the other, the other side that it's worth us touching on is the asylum backlog. Mm. And we had data, uh, the latest data released a couple of weeks ago that shows the backlog is continuing to grow. And obviously the Prime Minister has set this other target of clearing the backlog as it stood uh, uh, last year um, by the end of this year and uh, you know this is not going to do much to lighten the administrative load on on the government in processing people arriving in the UK i mean it might prevent them from admitting them into the asylum system as it's trying to do but essentially you're still going to have that backlog of people that the government is responsible for and and, and trying to deal with so it doesn't really address that problem either it's important to say that that backlog clearance exercise, I think, is a very constructive move that I think some people were suspicious about why were people being asked to do it. But it's an attempt, I think, for five or six countries with high acceptance rates to really make decisions on paper rather than have people waiting six, nine, 12 months for an interview. But there is a, a contrast between that policy, the backlog clearance, which is a very pragmatic uh, policy, and and the fact that you're creating a new problem with with the queue. So, um, I mean, another constructive part of this bill in theory, I think, is that it, it, it legislates for um, a safe route to the UK and for the Home Secretary to say how big that should be. But the government says it will introduce that when it's fixed the whole problem and stop the boats rather than using the safe route as one of the tools to divert the trafficking. So, you know, in some ways, they've got some of the some of the right policies playing some of the right notes, but not at all in the right order to make it add up and, and you know, contradictions, I think, between these different elements of their policy. And Sunder, can I ask you about the, the safe route plans? Because I've, I've been a bit confused this week about whether it's uh, introducing plans just for a cap, which would then allow the expansion of existing safe routes, or whether it's trying to introduce plans theoretically for a, a new sort of form of safe route. What do you make of what the government said? There's no detail on it yet at all, I think. Um, there's been a question they 
haven't been able to answer and that the media has become more interested in, politicians have become more interested in it, which is to say, if I'm from Afghanistan and I have a, uh, you know, a connection in the UK, where is my safe route? And, you know, there's obviously safe routes for Ukraine is a different scheme for um, Hong Kongers that, that um, are coming to Britain and in theory are a route for Afghans, but very, very few people are on it, but nothing <laughs> most other countries. So they're aware of that sort of moral and political challenge. They're saying we will do something. And then there's been a long-standing commitment to reopen resettlement um, after the Syrian scheme closed, before these three crises we were responding to, Afghanistan, um, Ukraine um, and Hong Kong. But at the moment, the government is now saying, well, you can have this, you can have this as a reward when we fix the boats. And a lot of us think that actually putting a humanitarian visa, a chance to come to Britain to state your substantive claim, that will be one of the tools, not a solution in itself, that will be one of the tools to have the right negotiation with France. The government isn't saying that yet. So in a way, I think at the moment it's a rhetorical commitment to saying, well, we know firm but fair because there will one day be a safe route without telling us what it will be and when it might come in. And afterwards is the current message. And Madeline, the Home Secretary seems quite keen to cite the wider migration statistics in support of the policy. And it is true that a large proportion of people who have migrated to the UK in the past year have been from the Ukraine, Hong Kong, and um, to a slightly lesser extent, Afghanistan through the government schemes. I mean, how do you think the debate about asylum fits into the government's wider migration policy? I think overall, the general direction of of travel is that, um, which is you know very much clear in this in this bill, is that the government wants to be able to select refugees. Now, the the global um, asylum protection system, as we know it, based on the Refugee Convention, uh, specifically doesn't envisage that. Envisages that effectively, once someone has arrived on the territory, a, a state has responsibility towards them. Um, regardless of how they got there and regardless of what their characteristics are, so long as they meet the definition of a refugee. And I think what's interesting about the um, sort of, on the one hand, you have uh, you know quite significant measures now to try and um, clamp down on asylum seeking at the same time as expanding safe and legal routes for certain uh, groups of, of refugees is, is effectively a, it's a very different approach uh, saying, no, we, we don't want to be part of, of the global system. We want to be part of these specific routes where we've decided exactly who it is that we would classify as deserving or undeserving. Thanks, Madeline. And Sandra, I want to come to you. Um, last question of the podcast. You've recently published a report on the whole asylum system. If the government really wants to improve the system, what else should it be thinking about? Well, there's no magic bullet, but our approach is called control and compassion, and we have 10 points. But the how do you get here safely so that Britain can play its share and try and have a managed route? That's a humanitarian visa, and we'd like a parliamentary cap. But there's something else they could do, which they're moving in the wrong direction for. They they could do more than safer returns as well, if they want the balance. There used to be voluntary returns um, in this country where you could get advice from uh, civic society groups, an NGO, it could be a faith group in future, if you'd run out of road on the legal process without pressure you could find out what your options were and you could be incentivized if, if it worked for you at the moment you now have to phone up the home office to get that advice for you and nobody does and so voluntary returns have fallen off a cliff when they're mm. much more humane and much more affordable and much more likely to scale than enforced returns so there are lots of pragmatic policies actually to get an orderly workable humane immigration system you just need to get a shift in the politics of immigration to make space for them i think underneath the bonnet i think robert jenrick's working away at some of these sensible policies i think yvette cooper's very interested in them but they're a mile away from this massive clash across the house of commons that we'll be hearing about later 
Thanks, and uh, um, yes, we're all waiting to uh, to see what happens. Well, I think that's it for this discussion, though I can say with confidence this is not going to be the last time we talk about the issue on the IFG podcast. If you want to read more about this, Reese and our colleague Sachin have a short paper with seven questions the government should answer about the bill as it progresses through Parliament. You can find it on our website. Many thanks to Reese Klein and especially to Cinder Katwala and Madeleine Sumption and for joining us today. And thank you for listening to this special episode of Inside Briefing. Remember that you can find all our podcasts at iTunes. Spotify and on all other major platforms. Until next time, thank you.